Uh, well, I don't know about you, but I, I think it's been quite a hard week, really. Um, all the political and military stuff associated with extending the airstrikes into Syria, the debate in the House of Commons and all that sort of stuff. And I personally have been sort of dragged into that a bit with quite a lot of media stuff and writing some pieces for various organizations. I don't know about you, but the problem, I think, is we don't really understand what's going on in the Middle East. What's happening there and elsewhere reflects a deep divide between Sunni and Shia Muslims that goes back for well over a thousand years. And the region is made up of so many different clans and tribes and factions that I, for one, find it impossible to get my mind around them. We shouldn't forget that of the 33,000 people killed by terrorists last year, over 30,000 of them were Muslims killed by Muslims. But at the extreme end of the spectrum, the very idea of a caliphate, a worldwide Islamic state run under strict Sharia law and the brutality that accompanies that is, for me anyway, beyond comprehension. But we should also remember that it took a long series of bloody wars in the 17th and 18th centuries to even begin to resolve the differences and the deep division between the Catholic and Protestant Christian world. A series of wars that, depending on which historian you read, killed off a very large chunk of the European population. The Treaty of Westphalia saw the end of 30 years' war in Europe in 1648, but it took another 250 years to create democracy as we understand it today. And even then, in the 20th century alone, it is estimated that around 150 million people were killed in wars around the world, 20 to 30 million of those since 1945. The bottom line is, is that in something like 3,500 years of recorded history, we can only find about 300 years when it looks like there may have been worldwide peace. And beautiful though it is, the Christmas story is a part of that. The stark reality is that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, was born into a world of violence and injustice, a world of corruption and the abuse of power, a world where men, women and children suffered at the hands of tyrants and puppet kings like Herod, a vicious, self-centered and insecure thug who ordered the death of every baby boy aged two and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem when he heard about the birth of Jesus. And 2,000 years later, Bethlehem is locked inside a deeply divided country with a massive wall built in an attempt to stop people killing one another. And yet, here we are, Advent, second Sunday in Advent, and I'm about to start talking about the peace of Bethlehem, the peace that the Bible talks about. So where and what is that peace in the sort of world that we live in. We're going to hear what Paul has to say about it. We're going to have a reading from Philippians, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. Penny's going to come and read to us. If you want to follow it in the Church Bible, it's on page 1181. It's Philippians, chapter 4, beginning at the fourth verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. 
Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thanks be to Penny for reading it to us. Thank you, Penny. One of the reasons um, that I think is probably most often given for not believing in God has to do one way or another with pain and suffering. And war is clearly a big part of that. But so too are personal tragedies. Uncertainty, sickness, death. We don't need to scratch too deeply into most people's lives. In fact, I know we don't need to scratch too deeply into most of the lives of the people in here now, this morning, or indeed in the first service. To come across what we might call the tyranny of circumstances. Events that overtake us and all too often leave us bewildered and afraid. I was helping to run a leadership development course in, uh, near ross on last week and one of the guys who was working with me was a man whose young wife had died unexpectedly six years ago on his 40th birthday leaving him with two little girls aged two and four to bring up on his own surely most if not all of us would ask where is God when that sort of disaster strikes when a loved one is ill or we're faced with the danger of losing our job or any other threat then our hearts and our minds begin to work in overtime and they're difficult to control. Our imagination runs wild as we begin to think about what may or may not happen or what we can or cannot do. Conversations with others become difficult as our fears leave us tired and drained and also often we can't sleep because of our anxieties and our worries as we chase imaginations and reason and argue our way through the options that may be open to us. The reality is that whilst we may try to control many things in our lives, we find it difficult, if not impossible, to control our hearts and our minds. And when difficulty or a crisis hits, often we're just left at their mercy. I was chatting to Jeff on uh, Thursday night, uh, at, uh, about various things, and he told me a story which I thought would be good to share uh, this morning. So, Jeff, over to you. Never chat to Tim midweek. There's a lesson there somewhere. Um, it's a bit of a perfect storm for me at work at the moment. Um, just in this last week or ten days, um, I'm part of a, um, an organization that is a group of four companies, and our owners, who are private equity, and if you know anything about them, they... 
They're in it to buy and sell. Uh, they've sold off the other three bits of the group to leave us sort of sitting there. And uh, lots of questions, therefore, being asked about what our fate might be or when something may happen. Um, at the same time, and completely coincidentally, our CEO, who is my boss, uh, has decided to leave the company. And so we have these two things happening, which are big enough in themselves, uh, but we're trying to uh, manage that as being two separate events, uh, as they're not linked. Um, and in the midst of that, I found out about a couple of days before Tim and I were chatting um, that we're going to lose, at the end of the year, one of our uh, major clients. And I received that news about 11 o'clock at night, uh, just before I went to bed. And you can imagine all of this then is playing on, on your mind. I, I slept okay, uh, but I woke up and I was immediately thinking about it and the consequences. Um, so a lot of stuff happening at once, and in, 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 in a circumstance where my boss is kind of on the way out, I'm being asked, uh, on an interim basis at least, to lead the team. Uh, so I have a responsibility not just to think about my own situation, uh, but for everybody uh, in the company. Uh, so there's a lot uh, preying on my mind, and trying to do a lot of praying. And um, uh, as, as you hear this scripture from Philippians, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful passage, but it's very challenging. And I suppose there's a couple of reflections on that um, that I'd, I'd like to share. One is um, the importance of the discipline of prayer and scripture reading. Um, but, you know, it, it's very hard to push those things out of your mind. Uh, you can be halfway down a paragraph of scripture and find that you haven't read anything. I'm sure you've been in that situation. Um, so perseverance is one thing, to have that discipline of, of keep at it because it is important because there's nothing more important that, that I can do right now than to pray and to commune and to communicate with God. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, it may well be that my job ultimately is under threat. But there is something there that says, well, and, and I, I, I don't belittle this. I preface my next comment by saying I don't belittle that situation. I know many in this church have been through that situation. But at least I find... The, the second uh, thing that I'm, I'm uh, aware of, I suppose, as I'm going through this process is context. That at the end of the day, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is, yes, I might lose my job. Um, or other people in my organization may well lose their jobs. But that's, if that's the worst that can happen and I have a God who loves me, then my mind turns to the scripture um, around Romans, which says nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You know, in the end, what is most important? Where is my faith? Where is my rock? And although it's very hard to keep all these other thoughts from cramming in and closing in, those are the areas where I think at the moment my heart is and where my strength is. Jeff, thank you. And um, over coffee after the first service, a couple of people came up to me and said that what Jeff had to say was really helpful. I like to think that what I also had to say was fairly helpful. But, um, but I said to the person, I could pick 20 people from this congregation now to tell a similar story, I suspect. We all go through difficult times in our lives, and life is often very tough. And all too often it leaves us angry and fearful or simply drained of emotions. And Paul, the writer of these words on the screen, those of you who know Paul and have read through the letters and so on, will know that Paul went through terrible difficulties and stress, stresses and strains in his life. Uh, and yet, 
he tells the church in Philippi in this letter that they should rejoice in the Lord always and that the peace of God, which he says transcends all understanding, will guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How can he say that? Is it just wishful thinking? Let me try at least to provide some sort of answer. I think the first thing to me is to note that Paul, uh, Paul doesn't say just pull yourself together or stop worrying. We all know that being told not to worry is about as much use as being told it'll be all right in the end or that we're, what we're afraid of may never actually happen or that all the worrying in the world won't make any difference. All perfectly true, perhaps. Worrying is wasted energy and usually doesn't change much. But that doesn't stop our hearts and our minds chasing all the possibilities and fearing the worst. So what is Paul's answer? Now, on the face of it, it isn't very helpful. He simply tells us to pray about it, to which many, if not most of us, at certain stages in our lives anyway, if not most of the time, might well reply, well, we've tried that. We've prayed about the problem, and we haven't found any peace. Put most starkly, prayer doesn't appear to be of any use. But notice the sequencing that Paul talks about here, the way he differentiates between prayer and then petition, or bringing our problems to God, and then thanksgiving. What does he mean by those three pieces of the puzzle? Let's start with prayer. Biblical prayer means first and foremost worship and adoration. If we have problems that seem insoluble and we're becoming anxious and overburdened and someone tells you to pray about it, then it may seem natural to start by laying out the problem. But Paul tells us that first we should begin by worshipping. We should begin by coming into the presence of God. Worship him for who he is and for what he has done. We are to begin by acknowledging that we are in the presence of the creator of the universe. That is the beginning. That is the place to start. And it's not by chance that we always start with that in these services here at St. Paul's. We've just had worship songs and opening worship to draw us into the presence of God. We first realize and recollect that we are worshiping a glorious, all-powerful creator God. And as we dare to come face to face with him, we should pour out our hearts in adoration. Like King David in the Psalms, we should declare that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and that the Lord is our light and our salvation, the stronghold of our lives. We sung that earlier in one of the choruses. Whom then should we be afraid? If God is really the stronghold, if he is the light of our, of our lives and our salvation, why are we afraid? That's what David says, and that's what we should draw ourselves into. Then having worshipped God because he is God, we're then encouraged to make our requests. We lay out the issues. I think in doing so, we have to acknowledge, too, that we are now prepared to accept his will. Now, I honestly don't think this is a cop-out, but it's a recognition that what God grants is what leads most effectively to what is required. Jeff doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He may lose his job. All sorts of things may change. All sorts of things in your life may change in the days and weeks or months ahead. But we shouldn't forget that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane 
that if the Father is willing, then the cup of suffering that he is about to face should be taken from him. But then he adds, yet not my will, but yours be done. And the harsh truth is that the cup was not taken from Jesus. He had to face arrest and a trial and scourging and the brutality of the cross. Laying out our requests does not necessarily lead to an easy way out of our troubles. Even so, Paul then says to to give thanks. We're told by Paul to give thanks. It's important that we understand that Paul is not interested here in some sort of clever liturgy. Not teaching us a formula to follow where we have to do certain things in a certain order, otherwise God isn't interested. Far too much, I think, of what goes on in far too many churches revolves around form and format. Thanksgiving may at first sight seem a bit much considering the mess that we're in or the trouble that we're facing. But Paul is telling us that if we are to pray to a God with a grudge in our hearts, then we have no right to expect that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. If we go on our knees feeling that God is against us, we have doubt in our hearts, then we are not going to experience his peace. We might just as well get up and give up. But if we approach him with thanksgiving, with no doubt to his goodness, no uncertainty about his love for us, then we are opening ourselves up to his peace. So whilst we may have our problems and troubles, we must deliberately ask ourselves, what can I thank God for? And there will surely be lots we can be grateful for, with family and friends and circumstance and so on, even though we may be in trouble now. But above all, we can thank God for our salvation, that he sent Jesus to die on a cross for us and for our sins. We may be facing a terrible problem, uncertainty and a crisis, but God has done that for us already, and we can surely thank him for it. Thank him that he sent his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. Thank him that Christ took upon himself our sins. Thank him for rising again and giving us the hope of salvation, the hope of an eternity with him. We can pour out our hearts in thanksgiving for that as well as for the many other blessings he has given us in the past. Now, I don't think Paul is advocating here a sort of desperate cry into the dark, not some wishful thinking without any rhyme or reason. It recognizes the truth, the reality that God is our Father, that he knows us by name, and that he loves us and wants the best for us. The reality is that he sacrificed himself for us. And as we give him thanks, we are moved into a place of confidence, confidence that he will do whatever needs to be done. And what is the result? Does Paul say that God will then banish or remove all of our worries? Not at all. He doesn't say that the things we feared are not going to take place. The glory of the gospel is that God is concerned about us, not about our circumstances. Too many of us are tyrannized by circumstances, circumstances we want to try to control or govern. But that is not the way of the gospel. Stuff happens. Events occur. Read through the stories of the scriptures. They are full of things going wrong for all sorts of people. But Paul tells us to make our requests known unto God so that his peace 
which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds. He doesn't say that in and of itself our prayers will make us feel better or that we'll get some sort of temporary relief or that by filling our thoughts with God and Christ we will somehow push away all of the other things. And importantly, as I said earlier, it doesn't actually say that prayer will always change everything. It doesn't say any of those things. What it does say is that God's peace will guard our hearts and our minds. Guarding, garrisoning, protecting, defending our hearts and our minds. It all gives us a picture of God holding the ramparts and the towers of our lives. We are inside and the worries, the stresses and anxiety of the world come at us from the outside. And gaining the peace of God, we're told, will hold them at bay. The triumph of the Gospels is that whatever our circumstances, we can find peace in the centre of the storm. The peace of God, says Paul, passes, transcends all understanding. And I think he's right. Jesus' peace is a peace that the world cannot give. Indeed, the world does not largely understand it. It is not an absence of war. It is not about a pain or crisis-free life. The world changed forever in AD 33, not on September the 11th, 2001. Jesus Christ said many things about peace, but not once did he associate it with the world as a whole, but rather with an individual and inner spiritual peace. There's wonderful words from John's Gospel. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the irony is that the birth of a baby at Christmas is the start of a journey that leads to a violent death on a cross from which true peace follows, unhindered by the world's strife. And the incredible thing is that this peace is available to everyone, to poor, illiterate shepherds, to rich, wise men, to you and to me, yes, even to brutal tyrants and terrorists. In chapter 8 of his letter to the Romans, Jeff referred to this, and we sung it earlier on, if God is for us, who can be against us? That wonderful letter, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is nothing if not inspirational. Like Paul, we live in an uncertain and a violent world. It's always been that way and it always will be that way. None of us knows what is going to happen to any one of us in the days, the weeks, the months, or the years ahead. But whatever may or may not happen, whatever circumstance you may find yourself in, we can be certain of one thing. The peace of Christ, through the grace of God, 
will be sufficient to carry us through if we are prepared to open our hearts and accept him into our lives. It will hold us, sustain us, strengthen us. It will enable us to rejoice in tribulation. It will guard our hearts and our minds. And ultimately, it will present us faultless and perfect into glory and the presence of God. So may this peace, the true peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard all of our hearts and minds this Christmas and forevermore. Amen.